Let's open our Bibles to the book of Joel. On Sunday, we uh, took our text from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I will touch on that again tonight. Uh, I mentioned on Sunday that Joel, the meaning of his name means Jehovah is God. Uh, He is a prophet to the southern kingdom. Uh, The year is 835 B.C. What that tells us is that the northern ten tribes have not yet fallen, but he is a prophet to Judah, which would be the southern kingdoms. The theme of the book is the day of the Lord. What we've been learning as we've been going through the prophets is that from one verse to the next, you could have a local event taking place, and then in the very next verse, sometimes in the middle of a sentence after a comma, there will be a gap, and you can go right into the future. We're going to find that in our study tonight when it comes to the day of Pentecost. So don't think the Old Testament is just uh, history. It is not. Uh, Many times we read in the Bible, this happened according to the scriptures. And whenever it says according to the scriptures, it's referring to the Old Testament prophets. When we were in Hosea, I think it was chapter 11, verse 1. Yeah, when I, when I was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's just one verse, and if you're just reading it, it would go right over your head. That is, until you get to Matthew chapter 2, and we find the wise men visiting Herod. He wants to know where uh, the king of Israel is to be born, and they told him. They quoted Micah. So there's one prophecy. And then, the next one, there an angel is warning the wise men not to return to Herod, which really ticks Herod off. And um, they're told to return um, another way. And um, that scripture right there says, for I, they, they quote Hosea chapter 11, when I was a child I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that's where Mary and Joseph went, where the angel warned them, don't go Back to Nazareth, go to Egypt until Herod dies. Well, Herod's ticked off. So the other prophecy, there's three prophecies in Matthew 2. The last one is uh, the wailing of uh, Rachel's children, which is a reference to Herod sending his henchmen and killing every male child under two. And that was a prophecy from the Old Testament. So just in that one chapter, you have three different um, prophecies being fulfilled. Tonight, uh, we'll see the fulfillment of Acts chapter 2, and that itself is a double prophecy. Part of it has been fulfilled, and part of it hasn't, and we're going to get into in-depth with that on uh, this Sunday morning. So it's both a local message to the southern kingdom, but it's also yet future dealing with, um, if you look at um, chapter 2, verse 2, for the day of the Lord is coming, future tense. So it's not only a local application of judgment, but also uh, prophetic in that it looks into the future. There is an outline, if you're, if you're into outlines and you like to let, lay out your study like that. Um, the first part of it would be um, literally a local plague of locust. That's chapter 1 through 1 through 14. And just so you can get an idea of the severity of the judgment, I went online today and uh, I thought, I wonder if there's any locust plagues that I can pull up on the film. So we found a couple. This is one minute long, and I'm going to play it at this time. It'll make chapter one come to life. So here is what locusts can do in a very short period of time. An adult locust eats its entire body weight every day, and a whole swarm can consume literally hundreds of tons of vegetation. They have to keep on moving. 
The swarm travels with the wind. It's the most energy-saving way of flying. Following the flow of wind means that they're always heading toward areas of low pressure, places where wind meets rain and vegetation starts to grow. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. 100 tons is what they said in a day, and it's just mind-boggling. So what drives uh, the locust? It's driven by the wind. Um, I would compare it to when the people rebelled against Moses, the Lord sent fiery serpents in that bit the people, and they began to die. Well, that was a judgment. And so the Lord sent in the serpent. This is referred to again in um, John chapter 3, um, where he's witnessing to Nicodemus, and he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Because the only way to get healed from this snake bite was to look at this bronze serpent on a pole, which is crazy. And some people did, and they lived, and some people said, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. I'm dying here. And you want me to look at, at what? What Jesus did on the cross. In other words, he was saying, Nick, listen up. And this has to happen. He didn't understand you must be born again. So he said, anybody who looks to the cross and believes in the finished work on the cross, they're going to be saved. Now that's right before the verse where we have the most memorable verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, you and I are whosoever, believes in him shall not perish. What, just by doing that? The disciples weren't so sure about it in John 6, 29. He said, what, what do we have to do to do the works of God? And the Lord looked at him and said, believe on him whom the Father has sent. That's it? What? I did, I, matter of faith and believing that? It's the whole gospel. It's what sets you free. I say this over and over again, but it's so true. Put yourself in the equation that you have to do something to add to the finished work when Jesus said it was finished, if you try to add anything to it, then the Bible says it's either going to be faith or grace. But it's one or the other. You can't have both. So you're either going to try to make it by faith uh, by faith and grace or by works. But you can't put the two together. And yet much of... of um, I was brought up Protestant, and I was told unless I was, wasn't baptized as an infant that I wouldn't be saved. And it's part of salvation. Um, in Roman Catholicism, it's uh, uh, transubstantiation or the Eucharist, another offering on an altar by a mass that literally turns Jesus being offered again. And that's adding to the scriptures. And it's very, very dangerous. And so when we go through um, the scriptures, we like to point out What's false teaching and what isn't? And a safeguard for um, the Calvary chapels that are still teaching the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we have a safeguard in that uh, we just let the, the scriptures speak for themselves, and they do a pretty good job of just speaking for themselves. And as we get into Joel, I wanted to, the first, it's in three different sections, and the first chapter is a local and literal plague of locusts. And that's why I wanted to show you that video clip. It destroyed everything. It was a judgment of God because they weren't repenting. <clears throat> Remember I told you the 10 northern tribes had no good kings of the, of the 19? The southern kingdom of Judah had 20, but eight of them were good. So yes, God brought judgment upon them, and this is one of them, and the prophet that he's using here is Joel. The second section of the book is uh, chapter 1, verse 15 through chapter 2, 32, uh, looking to the day of the Lord. And the third 
And final section, there's only three chapters, is looking at the day of the Lord. Uh, It has two parts, the great tribulation and then the millennial kingdom. So we have an order. God is very orderly, and he sets them in an order. And uh, even though uh, it is repetitive, that's good. And, um, I mean, remember the first time you tried your ABCs. How far did you get? (laughs) It was A, B, C, D, Elemento, P, O, U, Y, Z. And how long did it take you to get them down? Some learn quicker. It took me forever, I think. I don't know. <laughs> so let's dive in um, with, with uh, chapter 1. We shouldn't have any problem cracking these chapters out tonight. We have the reason for the plague, verses 1 through 14. In a nutshell, it's a refusal to repent. As Jonah is a prophet, Joel is a prophet, speaking in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Peel, Pethul. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your father? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. As many, I uh, watched another video clip, it says as many locusts that you saw in those swarms, there's just as many at that given time on the ground. And what the swarming locust left, the uh, crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. <clears throat> Awake you drunkards and weep and wail all drinkers of wine because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are as the teeth of a lion. He has the fangs of a fierce lion, and he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourns who ministered to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So gird yourself and lament, you priest. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie at night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Now, that's up to verse um, 14, and basically he's just laying out the reason the um, uh, locust has come and what they've done and um, have laid the land barren and waste. I suppose it would be like the Dust Bowl. I would compare it to anything um, which could have easily been a, a judgment by the Lord, it devastated our country, put a lot of people on the road to um, head west. And it's a part of our history. So here is where, again, as we study the Old Testament, what you want to get a hold of, it's um, the rule rather than the exception that it doesn't say, okay, now I'm going to change the subject and talk about the last days. 
But this is one of those cases, and only having hindsight, when we look back on it, do we realize it and have an understanding. Like if a good way of going back to Hosea 11, when I was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Unless the Holy Spirit would have put that in Matthew chapter 2 and explained it, I would have never got that. I would have never connected those dots. So when we look at verse 15, this was a judgment, but now he's comparing it to something that is yet future. And this was the title of Sunday's message, Alas for the Day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. That was the title of Sunday's message. No, the, uh, the, it's um, chapter 2, verse, for the day of the Lord is coming. A little bit different here. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. It's not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed grains uh, shrivers under the clods and storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down for the grain has withered. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even a flock of sheep suffer your punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. And the beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the watery brook has dried up, and fire has devoured the open pasture. Okay, so evidently, not only has uh, the locusts come through, but now what they need is rain. They need literal rain. And here we're told that the, the, the fountains, the brooks, are all dried up. And um, the day of the Lord is at hand. And here is where you want to begin to connect the dots. The very first verse of Revelation 7, it says that, well, I'll tell you what, let's just hop over to Revelation chapter 7, make a connection here. Revelation 7 verse 1, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So what happens when the, um, uh, the water cycle with our weather system stops? Um, well, you don't have the storms coming in and moving on. You don't get the evaporation from the ocean to move it on to land where it, where it drops it. Now, if you look at this verse here, now go to chapter 11, and we have the two witnesses. Remember, this is the great tribulation. That is the day of the Lord, the judgment. And what we're comparing this to now is that in Joel's day, locust came out. Now, we'll be going to Daniel Revelation 9 in just a bit, connect that dot, but let's connect this one here. No rain, after everything's been wiped out. In Revelation 11, um, it tells us that the Lord is going to give power to his two witnesses. I believe they are Moses and Elijah. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have power to shut heavens so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Now that's Elijah. And what we just read in Joel is that everything, the plague has come, judgment has come, but to make it worse, there's no water. Now, what the tribulation is, is the same thing. Revelation 7, the first verse says that four angels stopped the currents from going around. And we say, how, does, how did that happen? Well, Elijah's ministry lasted for 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. When we're raptured, which I hope is before the end of this Bible study, when we're raptured, um, I believe that God always leaves a witness, and I believe these two guys could be around today, or the Lord plants them like he planted them on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. They just showed up. Peter, James, and John were there. And the length of their prophecy is 1,260 days, or exactly three and a half years. 
So there's no rain on the earth for that period of time. Now, one of the reasons I think we have um, the story of Elijah and Abraham and the contest with the Baal on who answers from heaven by fire, let him be God. It hadn't rained for three and a half years when that went on. But after, the, after Elijah prayed, said, Lord, show him your God. I mean, the prayer was that simple. These guys danced around, cutting themselves all day, crying out to Baal, and they did it all day long. Nothing happened. And um, Elijah starts to mock him. Ah, he's probably on vacation. Maybe he's taking a nap. Who knows? And he, he begins to mock uh, these prophets of Baal. Why? Because there's no such thing as Baal. There's one God and one God only. Good place for an amen. amen. And Elijah's proving the point. He says, you want to see God? Okay, douset, sacrifice, really good. Matter of fact, dig a, dig a trench around it. Put some water on it. That's not enough. Do it again. That's not enough. Put some more on there. Oh, Lord, show them who's God. Not only was the sacrifice consumed, the water was licked up, and the altar that was built on was all destroyed. The, the, the stone altar that was there, that was eaten up too. And uh, that was a period of three and a half years. Now, the reason I think the Lord did that in the Old Testament so that when we read Revelation 11 and Revelation 7, it says the wind stopped blowing. You go, oh, you got to be kidding me. That's crazy. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. That's crazy. Well, no, it happened before. And that's what, this is where our faith is increased. Because we can look, we're reading through Joel. We're reading through Hosea. We're reading through Elijah. And we say, no, this is nothing new. This, is ha- this has happened before, and it will happen again. I can say it with such certainty that Jesus said, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but not this word. Not one jot, not one tittle. If it's in this book, it is going to happen, and nothing is going to stop it, period. And we need to be able to really have a good grasp of this so that we can, in a real simple way, without being showy or being a motivational speaker or trying to impress people with our orator, whatever. Just um, share the word with people, show it to them. And um, what you want to do is just get them, get them thinking. All right, let's go back to um, our first chapter. Chapter one is the waters being dried up and preceded by a judgment of locust. And the reason is that they have refused to repent. Brings us to chapter 2. We'll read verse 11. This was our text from last Sunday. Uh, If you're watching live stream and you didn't um, uh, watch last stream, you can go to Calvary Chapel. We've got an app. Just tap on it. I think Thomas usually has it up by then. I'm not sure. Um, but um, you can get it that way. Chapter 2, verse 1, verses 1 through 11, is um, a prophecy that is fulfilled in Revelation chapter 9. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the Lord tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Now the day of the Lord has many different titles. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called Daniel's 70th week. Jesus called it the tribulation, a time that has never been and a time that will never be again. And he says, unless he directly intervenes and comes back, all flesh would be destroyed. That's the day, what we call the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, or here, The day of the Lord is coming, future tense. And that's, for it is at hand. It's a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. Then it says, A people come, great and strong. 
the likes of whom have never been. Now, you've got to read that carefully. The likes of which have never been. They're referred to here as people, but they're going to be tied into Joel's prophecy as locust. All right? Nor will they ever be any such after them, because they are going to be judged. And their place is the lake of fire. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, were, were told. And um, uh, it says, a fire devours before them and behind them flames burn. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. Now notice this, the connecting, switching back and forth. What we read in verse 2 is clearly futuristic because regular locusts have been since Joel 2. But not these guys. These guys have never been. There's never been anything like these people or locusts uh, either before or after. But all of a sudden you jump back to verse 3. Don't let that throw you. A fire like the Garden of Eden before him and behind them a, a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Um, so the reference here is actually um, like the Garden of Eden, which was beautiful, but eventually, during this time, it became a desolate place. Now, their appearance. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, um, and like swift steeds, so they run, with a noise like chariots. Over mountains they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, people wither in pain. Regular locusts don't do that. All faces are drained of color. The Bible says in the last days, men's hearts are going to fail them for fear when they see the things that are coming during the Great Tribulation period. I think the most feared, fearful people during that time will be many people that grace a pew in Christian churches across our country. And um, basically these days it's, it's been watered down to such an extent that it's a motivational speaker that's there to hype you up, make you feel good as you're going home. Rather, the Bible says in the last days uh, um, there will be false teachers and people will have itching ears, and they will gravitate towards people that entertain them or make them feel good. And what's, what's so good or entertaining about um, your faith being drained of all color? Um, some people are going to have an awareness of the scriptures, but they're not going to have a personal relationship with the Lord. And they'll actually say to the Lord, but Lord, we went to church. I mean, we supported World Vision for Pete's sake. And um, they, they're going to go through their list of works. But it's not grace, you see, it's their works. And they actually have this sort of like God judging on a bell curve sort of deal. And their idea, and this is the thinking of most people in America today. Are you going to heaven? Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Well, why? So they have this bell curve rating. Well, God judges on a bell curve. I'm better than I'm bad. Or some people will think, no, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I probably won't make it, if they're honest with themselves. And uh, yet, that's not biblical at all. Because my Bible says that my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. That in me dwells no good thing. Wait a second, Dwight. There's got to be something good in there somewhere. No, not really. <laughs> that's how tricky our flesh is. The heart the motive of the heart. Um, I'm to judge scripture and doctrine. The Bible says the spiritual man judges all things. And so what we're going to get into on Sunday is I'm going to expose the false doctrine of those who don't hold to the Trinity. And we'll, we'll tell you, I'm going to tell you who they are. And um, um, at the same time, where was I? I? See, I shouldn't have done that. Now I can't find my way back. But 
I'll find my way back because we we're starting verse 2 and I'll remember and then I'll tell you. <laughs> but the day of the Lord is coming and um, we ended up with, oh, just uh, verse 6, people withering in pain. There's nothing, there's nothing happy clappy about that. And uh, my point that now I remember is that a lot of people, the most tormented people during the tribulation are people who thought they were Christians and they're left behind. And they're all going to end up with the one world religion that, that's headquartered in Rome. Oh, it'll be called Christian. And um, it'll survive for three and a half years. And after three and a half years, the Antichrist, who doesn't want anybody to be worshipped except him, has Rome nuked, takes it out, destroys it. Why? Because only he can be worshipped. Second Thessalonians 2 says that uh, you won't know for sure that you're in the great tribulation. One of the signs is the apostasy or the falling away. That's what's happening in the church today. They're falling away from sound biblical teaching. They've gotten away from the word of God to motivational speaking. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, that's the first thing. There's going to be this falling away. The next thing, it says, the man of sin is going to come. The son of perdition. What does he do? Well, he goes into the temple, so we know there's going to be um, a temple. By the way, I was just reading it. I think it was in the news bites. More Jews have been in a temple mount this year since 1967. But we, we took it back since 70 A.D. So now there's this resurgent to, to have the temple built again. And it will be because the Antichrist, after he gets rid of Rome, uh, which is the center of the one world religion, that's done away with, then he goes and declares himself to be God. And you either take his mark, which is also part of the news bites tonight. I think the title is you're going to get chipped sooner or later. <laughs> and let's face it. We're doing more and more transactions online, eBay, than we are. And what do we see going out of business? Oh, JCPenney's, places like that, Sears, and people don't do that anymore. And we're, it's technology that's driving this. And it's eventually going to get to the point where it will be a cashless society. I mean, we can see it. Gang, that's called a sign. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, when it says, Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should tell you. Because you're children of light and children of the day. You understand. So when we see things going towards a one-world religion and people dropping uh, their doctrines, uh, degrees down to, let's just get along. Can't we just get along? Wouldn't Jesus want us to love one another? Well, of course he does. But there's more in the Bible that Jesus taught about loving one another. I am to judge. I'm commanded. To, the spiritual man judges doctrine. But when it comes to where you're at with your relationship with the Lord, I'm not supposed to judge that because I'm not God and I can't see in your heart. Paul says, I won't even judge myself. He says, my, my flesh is so tricky, I don't trust it one bit. So he says, I'll let the Lord do that. And... Um, once we know that it's grace, then we can fulfill, really fulfill, the only commandment that he's given to us, which is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul. We're to love him. Well, you can only love somebody that you're grateful for, and you want to do that, not have to do that. Um... When Mark and Karen are married, they're going to get married in Madison. Um, Jeff isn't going to say, did you put a shotgun to this girl's head? Is that why she's up here right now? No, he's not going to say that. As Mark slithers in the pew. <laughs> no, he really loves a gal. And they're doing it of their own free will because they want to. Well, when I see what the Lord has done for me, I want to love him. He calls me his bride. He's my groom. But the love isn't going to be there unless I appreciate what he has 
done for me. For all that he's done, Romans 12 says, it's the reasonable service to present your body a living sacrifice. Very reasonable in light of what he's done for me. What do you want me to do, Lord? Oh, how about singing me a love song? That's why we worship before we teach. It sets the stage. And um, when we're worshiping the Lord, this book here, sort of remember when we read last week about breaking up your fallow ground? That's what worship does. If you had a tough day, and maybe you got a little hard-hearted or you're angry at somebody or something, all of a sudden you're singing worship songs. Well, what does that do? Breaks up the hard ground. Makes it easier for the seeds of the word of God to actually take root and produce fruit. And the fruit of the spirit is love. That's it. Everything else that you read after that, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, those are all byproducts. The fruit of the spirit, singular, fruits, doesn't say fruits, says fruit. The fruit of the spirit is love. The attributes of love are kindness and gentleness, esteeming the other person more highly than myself. That isn't me. My flesh esteems me higher than anybody else. But the Lord in me esteems you higher than me, and that's supernatural. It's a supernatural thing that only the Holy Spirit living in and through you can do. So we left off with um, them... um, the people that have come are, are strong. It's a fire, we got past that. Oh, the wither in pain. They're like mighty men, verse 7. They climb the wall like men of war. Each one marches in formation. And they do not break ranks. And they do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. And when they lunge between the weapons, they're not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Let's go to Revelation chapter 9. The book of Joel is twofold. It is a message to the people of Joel's time who are living in the southern kingdom of Judah. They won't repent. They're stubborn, and they won't turn from their sins, so that God judges them with a plague of locusts. It really happened. And now in chapter 2, it talks about creatures, people, There's never been the likes of them seen before, and they're never going to be seen again. And when we get to the trumpet judgments in Revelation 9, and we're going to read um, 2 verse 12 and let it speak for itself, and I just want you to connect the dots. What Joel is talking about and what we just read is a prophecy. It is now being fulfilled in Revelation 9, where it says the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth. Well, it's not a star because it says, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. I do believe this is Satan. He does have access to come and go in heaven. That's what the book of Job is all about. And uh, he opened the bottomless pit And smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts uh, upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth. Well, that's what locusts do. So we have something different here, but they're called locusts or any green thing, or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Well, if I would have kept reading in Revelation 7, when the four angels held back the four winds, and the next verses talk about 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Dan is not mentioned. 
Instead, you have Joseph and uh, Ephraim. Uh, Joseph got a double portion, and you can get 12 that way by taking away Dan. Well, why isn't Dan there? Dan is a northern tribe that's responsible for bringing Baal worship into the country. And so he's not protected during the tribe of Dan is not have a seal on it during this period of time. That's the picture of God's judgment against the tribe of Dan. But when we're in Ezekiel, and we're getting towards that last chapter, and we're in the millennium, it's the 12 tribes, and it tells you what their borders are. It was all 12 of them, of the tribes. It says this tribe gets this, and it tells you what the borders are. Guess who's first on the list? Dan. What's that a picture of? God's grace and his mercy. Did they, were they disciplined and were they judged? Oh, yeah. Are you disciplined and judged when you do wrong? Hebrews 12 tells me that any loving father like that disciplines his son. So if you're not disciplined, then you're not a son at all because your fathers discipline your children when they do something wrong. So what we have here are not the locusts that I just showed you. We're talking demons. I suppose we could get sidetracked here just for a bit. Go back. They're being released, okay, out of the pit to bring judgment on the earth for five months. Go back to Jude. We're in Jude on, on Sunday, just one verse. And he's talking about the judgment of false teachers, And then, as an example, in verse 6, he says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain. Well, who are them? Well, Revelation 12 tells us that one-third of the angels rebelled with Lucifer. This guy has got to be shrewd and cunning off the charts to be able to deceive one-third of all the angels. One-third of Jesus' ministry was casting demons out of people. But some of them, because there's a hierarchy according to scripture when it comes to powers and principalities, I'd say generals, four-star, three-star, two-star, one-star, colonels and majors and sergeants and privates. And they have different measures of authority. And I know I've repeated this, but to prove it, you have Daniel chapter 10 again. And a prayer that Daniel prayed was the book of Daniel and tying in with the book of Revelation. Well, the devil doesn't want me or you to know about that. So he sends a heavyweight, the prince of Persia, which was a heavyweight fallen angel that was mightier than the angel that was bringing the message to Daniel. Daniel was used to having his prayers answered on the spot. And nothing was happening, so he doesn't eat. Uh, Puts on sackcloth and ashes for three full weeks until Michael the archangel shows up. Now, who is he? He's one of two of the archangels mentioned, Michael and Gabriel. Michael is a warrior. Gabriel is a messenger. And um, Revelation 12, Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels And Michael and his angels won, just like he won in Daniel chapter 10. And again, don't miss the point. There are hierarchies with authority and power. And even as long as as we're talking about that, look at verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. He had respect for the number one cherub at one time. He didn't get into a, um, a shouting match with him. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. That was the end of it. So verse 6, they, the angels, these are fallen angels, but they're left their own habitation, which was heaven. He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Now, there's a couple ways you could take this, but if you go back to Uh, chapter 9, I believe that's what Jude is talking about. That there are some demons that are so terrifying and can do such harm to mankind 
that they're locked up in some shaft called the bottomless pit that's going to get opened up someday. Now I've got to stop and say, isn't that the craziest thing you ever heard? You know, if you're an average Joe and you're not born again and you say something like that, they're going to roll their eyes at you big time. And yet, nonetheless, I do call this the strangest chapter in the Bible. Because they, have, they will come out and they will be released according to Jude. That's what I believe Jude is referring to. They're held in reserve until when? Until the day of judgment. Who's getting judged? The world. What for? For not receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Everything matters. Everything counts. And we sang earlier tonight, every knee is going to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee, eventually. But in the meantime, um, Revelation 6, verse 17 says, this is the wrath of the Lamb, the day of the Lord. And now they're released. Um, They're commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or green things or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And they were given authority not... uh, they were not given authority to kill them, but torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will free from them. I mean, they want to jump off of some tall building, and they do. But the spirit doesn't leave the body. And the shape of the locust was like the horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were crowns, something like gold, and their faces like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth, and their breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sounds of their wings were like the sound of the chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and they were... uh, Stingers in their tails, and their power was to hurt men for five months. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. I quoted Proverbs 30, 37 on Sunday, and uh, it says this, The locusts have no king. Well, why in the world would Solomon want us to know that? Well, it wasn't Solomon, it was the Holy Spirit that inspired him to write it. So that when we get to Revelation chapter 9, we know that Proverbs said, the locusts have no king. You saw a swarm of them. Did you see anybody leading the pack? Nope. They're just wandering around with the air currents. Not these guys. They march in ranks. And whenever there's a weapon, they dodge it. They go in between it. And these have a king over them who is the angel of the bottomless pit, the top one whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek it's Apollyon, another name for Lucifer, the devil. And on Sunday I went through a whole list of others. One woe is past, but still two more woes are coming after these things, the three woes. Let's go back to Joel. And now in verse 12, we have a therefore. Now he's going to go back and talk to his people. He's giving a future prophecy He says, now therefore, and again, every time I say there's a therefore, we have to ask what's it there for. It is therefore there because of what we just read. The first 11 verses of chapter 2, now he says, because this is going to happen, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Render your heart and not your garments. Render to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The Bible says he's not willing that any would perish. This idea of of Calvinism and that you're predestined and you have no say in the matter, that you're either predestined for heaven and hell, you know, you can blow that away so many ways. I mean, we just did it with John 3.16, whosoever. You're whosoever. You have a choice in the matter. 
But, you know, five-point Calvinism, Tulip, teaches you don't have a choice at all. Reformed theology. And um, you're either predestined to go to heaven, predestined to go to hell. Dave Hunt's got a book that thick, but he sums up the whole book and the title. What kind of love is this? <laughs> Good question. If God so loved, what kind of love is this? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. Joel can be speaking this as a prophet to the people, relating it to a real locust plague that took place, but then jumping into the future, talking about the day of the Lord and creatures that have never been seen before. They'll never be seen again. And when the Lord is through with them, they'll all be for all eternity in the lake of fire and outer darkness and place referred to as Sheol and hell. Gather the children and nursing babies and let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the people, where is your God? And then the Lord will be zealous for his people and, and pity the people. And the Lord will answer and say to the people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a, a reproach among the nations, but I will remove from you the northern army. Now this is a reference, current, back to the people now of Assyria, not only coming against, not only being a threat uh, to the northern kingdoms, but also to all of Israel. The first world empire would have been Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then the Medo-Persian, then the Grecian, then the Roman, and now the one that's taking form as I speak, the last one. But this, is, this reference here from the north is a reference to Assyria. With his face... Uh, and I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. This, I believe, and as we get into the Antichrist and what he does, this is actually a reference where we read in... Um, the, the earlier prophets that the Antichrist will get news uh, as he's conquering uh, in the south news from the, from the east troubles him and so he makes his way from there but he stops and he stops and on one side of him is the Mediterranean as he's facing it but his backside is Jerusalem and that's probably what we have a reference to here. His face is towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. The western sea would be the Mediterranean and the eastern sea would be the Dead Sea. And the stench is, is uh, the battle of Armageddon that actually takes place at the end of the tribulation. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord is the marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field. For the open pastures are sprung up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Now, there was for a long time... Um, all of Israel was desolate and dry. And the former rains have started again, and Israel today, as it stands, is absolutely gorgeous. As we get into the next verses here, we're going into the millennium. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vat shall overflow with new wine and oil. 
So I will restore to you the years that the swarm of locusts has eaten. Um, This can be taken out of context, and and often is, but it's applicable because when a person becomes a Lord, like my dad said when he got saved, I, I feel like I've wasted my whole life at the age of 50. And uh, people like to use this verse to say, well, you know, guess what? The Lord's going to restore to you that which you wasted or that which the locust has eaten. Now that you've given your life to the Lord, he's going to restore that. And it is spiritualizing the scriptures, but there's truth to it at the same time because it's true. Uh, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts, my great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Well, that's a millennial verse. Because the most shameful city in the, in the whole world is Tel Aviv. The irony of that blows my mind. The, the most sinful city on planet Earth is Tel Aviv, Israel, and the most religious is Jerusalem. And they're an hour and a half separate them. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of you, and I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people shall never be put to shame. Now, verse 28, And it will come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Now, because this is my text for Sunday, and I'm running out of time, I'm not going to expound on this now, except to tell you that this is a double prophecy. Part of it is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Peter gets up and quotes this very verse because uh, the Holy Spirit had fallen on them. And the unsaved people around him said, these guys are drunk. And Peter gets up and says, no, they're not. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so we have Peter saying it so that we know that that's what this is referring to. But it's a, that's even a double prophecy. And as we continue to read here, and also on my maid servants and I will pour out my spirit in those days, and I will show wonders on the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun and the moon will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. It will come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's if you're elected, of course. Bad joke. <laughs> For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, for the Lord has said among the remnants whom the Lord calls. Now, on Pentecost, when part of this was fulfilled, Joel actually had more to say. He talked about events in the Great Tribulation. Let's read chapter 3 quickly. For behold, in those days and at that time I will bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. That's the fulfillment of Isaiah 11.11. I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, a reference to the battle of Armageddon. I will enter into judgment with them on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land and they cast lots for my people. What's the biggest issue today? The the building settlements and what used to be Samaria and Judah, and um, that is now, they want that portioned off. They just portioned off Gaza, and they're dividing the land. That's already happened. They have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy in exchange for a, a harlot, and they've sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and the coast of Philistia? That's Philistia, would we be where Gaza is now? Will you retaliate against me? Will you build tunnels underground and then sneak up on the other side when you get into Israel? Oh, I just sort of added that, and I'm not supposed to do that. But that's exactly what's happening. Will you do that, Philistia? 
Yeah, that's what they're doing. Matter of fact, they just discovered some that made the news. Um, they found them in schoolhouses. Yeah, these guys are brave. They, they, they hide behind women's dresses and they build their, their shafts in children's schoolhouses. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and carried them to your temples, my prized possession. And also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, you have you've sold them to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them, and will return your retaliation upon your own heads. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. This is in Revelation, without going there, we find that a demon came out of the false prophet that looks like a frog. A demon came out of the Antichrist and a, and a demon came out of the devil. They all look like frogs. And they went to gather the kings of the east to the valley of Jehoshaphat for that great war. That's what the scripture is saying. All the nations are being gathered together to one place. And Antichrist is in, in there waiting. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be awakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's Megiddo. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations when the Lord returns in Revelation 19. Put in a sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for the wickedness is great. I'm going to quickly just do it myself and not have you do it. I'm turning to Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom, who has dried garments from Basra? That's another name for Petra in Jordan. The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling with the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? and your garments like the one who treads the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, for I have stained all my robes. Why? For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. The day has finally come that we've just read right here, Verse 12, let all the nations be gathered. And we find that he puts in a sickle. That's the Lord speaking. And the wine press is filled to overflowing to the point where it says the blood is going to come up to the horse's bridle. Now that blows my mind because I don't know if it's the literal distance of the 12,200 furlongs from Haifa where the valley begins, but it goes all the way to Petra. That's 1,200 furlongs, or exactly 184 miles, to the mile. Again, I know I'm going over time, but that should blow your mind. <laughs> that is that precise and that accurate in its description. It should hold us in awe. And then multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. When? People are writing books about blood moons now, and so on and so forth. No, this is all during the tribulation. Not now. But people are making a buck off a book, and that's why they're being written. Verse 16, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Well, how does he end up in Jerusalem? Well, that's where he left from, remember? Hey, you men of Galilee, why, why are you gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who you see taking up is going to return to this same spot. Zechariah 12, I don't have time to turn there, that says that he will put his foot on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split. 
when he does. And that's what's being made uh, when he returns to Zion. From where? Well, Isaiah 63 said he's returning from Basra, from Eden. Why? Because that's where the remnant is being made secure. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. That's the remnant. And the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem will be holy. No alien shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, literally. And it will go down to the Dead Sea. I'm taking from another scripture right now, and the Dead Sea is going to come back to life. One of my favorite places is En Gedi, and they're going to be spreading their nets at En Gedi. It's going to have the same fish that the Mediterranean has. And in the valley of Acacia, Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness because of the violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in the land. But Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. So now we're in the millennium, and I will acquit them of their blood guilt whom I have had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The book of Joel twofold, a message to the people that dealt with locusts because they wouldn't repent, ties it into the book of Revelation. The great tribulation period is clearly in view. The battle of Armageddon is clearly in view. Revelation 9 is clearly in view with the demon locusts being released and connect the dots. Good way to end it, I think. Connect the dots. Let's stand. Lord, we pray as we look at the therefore in chapter 2. Lord, give us soft hearts like you have. And um, give us um, a heart for the lost. Uh, We live in a world that is like Judah, very stubborn. It doesn't want to hear things it doesn't want to hear. So we pray tonight, Lord, that you'd make us instruments of your peace. Give us those divine appointments. And um, Lord, as we go tonight, we just pray that you bless the rest of our evening. And I pray for Sunday morning as we take an in-depth look of this double prophecy of the day of Pentecost. Lord, we are grateful for your grace and your mercy. And uh, we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.